1: Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. I hope you spotted that I got the episode number wrong last week. You don't get this sort of stuff on sword and scale, do you? Thank you to my new Patreon supporter last week. Hey, why the face? Love the name and also love the support. Thank you very much. Before we start, I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by my favourite beer company, Beer 52. So, You want to chill with the boys as you listen to one of my favourite US podcasts, True Crime Garage? Then head to beer52.com slash truecrime and make your selection now. Instead of paying £24 for a case of eight premium craft beers, you'll get your selection delivered to your door for the cost just of the shipping, £5.95. As well as the great beer, you'll get a snack and a 100-page magazine, So soon you can be confidently talking craft beer with the trendiest hipsters in the bars of Hoxton. The days of avoiding your post as it's all so boring, all the bills will be long gone. Craft beer is a sort of delivery I enjoy coming home to. You'll get the very best beers monthly from Trappist Monks in Belgium and New Age brewers in California. Right to your door at a superb price. What is there not to like? Try it now for great beer and to support this show just head to bf52.com forward slash truecrime. That's bf52.com forward slash truecrime. Today's episode spans from the late 60s to the present day, so I'm going to pick a key date for the episode, which is June 1977. Let's give the story some context by taking a look at the music of that time. Number one in the UK was Kenny Rogers with Lucille, followed by Rod Stewart with... I don't want to talk about it. And at number four, it was the Sex Pistols with God Save the Queen. What do you think? Still sounds great today? Or just bad musicians making noise? The Pistols tried to perform this song on a boat travelling down the River Thames during the Queen's Silver Jubilee celebrations this year, but they were stopped. Have you seen it before? If not, take a look at the footage if you get a moment. It's well worth watching. In the US charts, it was Dreams by Fleetwood Mac at number one, although just a month later, it was one of the classics by Sean Cassidy, "The Do Ron Ron. Ron, come on, you love it really. This month saw New Jersey allow casino gambling in Atlantic City. It was Spain's first free election since 1936 and Brezhnev was named as leader of the Soviet Union. Among supporters of Europe's premier football team, the Mighty Leeds United, it was always rumoured that Brezhnev was a fan too. I wonder. Oracle was formed this month by Larry Ellison and on June the 26th, the King himself, Elvis Presley, sang in Indianapolis which turned out to be the last performance of his career. In true crime news, on June the 26th, the Yorkshire Ripper killed 16-year-old shop assistant, Jane MacDonald, in Leeds. On to today's story. I appreciate that I cover some pretty disturbing material on this podcast, but I've had some feedback from some listeners saying that I haven't made them aware enough, so please be aware that this case does involve some very disturbing material. On the 23rd of August 2013, Neville Husband died at his house on Snow's Green Road, Shotley Bridge. This is a village in the Derwent Valley near the town of Concert in Durham in the northeast of England which is around 15 miles southwest of Newcastle. His death certificate says the primary cause of death was congestive cardiac failure, with the secondary cause being type 2 diabetes. He was aged 72, a married father of one, and listed on the death certificate as being a former minister of religion and factory worker. Hearing these basic facts now, he seems anything but extraordinary and the basic facts probably wouldn't cause anyone to take a second look. But trust me, Neville Husband was anything but ordinary. He was a man who destroyed countless lives, and to many today is known purely as the Monster of Medomsley. Medomsley Detention Centre was built in 1960 on the site of a Victorian orphanage near Consett in County Durham. It was one of a few new detention centres built at the time, the aim was to give young offenders aged 17 to 21 an unpleasant experience to turn them away from crime. The idea was that this bad experience at this early age would keep them away from prison where there was a strong possibility they would be approached and taken under the wing of older criminals. At the opening of Medomsley in 1961, Conservative Home Secretary Rab Butler told the House of Commons I rely absolutely on the regime in detention centres to be effective and strict. Junior Minister Charles Fletcher Cook spoke more bluntly of unpleasant experience and enforced discipline. Medamsley opened in february nineteen sixty one with around thirty staff looking after seventy five inmates. The local Northern Echo newspaper covered the opening saying that it would offer simple and secure accommodation while providing a short, sharp lessons for inmates. It will provide the usual sort of regime of a detention centre. Brisk activity under strict supervision, early morning physical training, followed by domestic duties and work. It was six years later when the first hint of a problem at the centre arose. In August 1967, the MP for Concert contacted the Home Secretary when the mum of a teenage boy claimed that he was consistently attacked by staff at the centre. Her 17-year-old son had been sent there for a three-month sentence after committing an assault. He told his MP, officers were kick and thump happy. It was like a prisoner of war camp. I was kicked, hit, and struck with various objects. The officers were vicious. When I got there, I was thumped in the mouth because I had five cigarettes in my pocket. The Northern Echo, after publishing these allegations, was contacted independently by three other inmates at the centre supporting these allegations. Other inmates told how they would lie with their legs outstretched and ask other boys to jump on their legs to break them so that they could escape from this institution via the hospital. One teenager came forward to say he'd been beaten across the bare chest with a studded belt. It was like hell, he said. Another told how the horror started on arrival, with almost every new inmate beaten when they arrived, while boys were forced to bunny hop along a corridor, i.e. they had to move to the squat position, and then jump, which as you know is exhausting. But when they couldn't keep it up and keep going, the boys were kicked and beaten again and again if they collapsed on the floor. The government had changed and it was now Labour under Howard Wilson, and the Home Secretary was Roy Jenkins. The local MP raises complaints with Roy Jenkins, and just over a week later he received a reply from the Home Office Minister, Lord Stoneham, saying that careful inquiries had been made and there was nothing to substantiate the claims. The MP was happy with this response and told journalists, I'm now satisfied that the allegations are unfounded. I think that no value can be attached to what this boy and his mother allege. It was a couple of years later, in 1969, that prison officer Neville Husband moved from Portland to Medomsley Detention Centre. He would remain there for 15 years, running the kitchen and sexually and physically abusing the boys in his care. It's been suggested that he abused boys every single day of his employment. From his background, looking now, it's clear that husband should never have been trusted to work with young boys. In 1967, two years before arriving at Medomsley, husband was training with the prison service at Portland Borstal near Weymouth on England's southwest coast when he was arrested and charged with importing pornography from mainland Europe. This was nasty stuff with sadomasochistic pictures often showing underage teenage boys. Husband admitted importing the images, and even showing it to boys he was looking after. But no charges were pursued against him after he claimed that the images were to help him with a book he was writing on homosexuality. Yes, really. A document signed by the Governor of Portland Borstal reads as follows. The police showed me sample pictures of men in obscene and lewd postures, a signed order form and a signed cheque which they allege was sent to an address in Sweden by Officer Husband. The police interviewed Officer Husband at Portland Police Station and he admitted sending for a series of photographs. The sample of the series he ordered pictured two naked men apparently engaged in homosexual activity. Immediately following the police interview, Husband saw me privately and informed me of the statement he had made to the police. He told me and the police that he was considering writing a book on homosexuality and he had sent for the photos to assist to this end. Officer Husband is a good cook and baker, a married man with one child, buff, hearty and something of a comedian. Husband knew that vulnerable children were less likely to inform and if they did, they were less likely to be believed. Sadly, this is still something that we hear again and again today. Husband did his research on those he abused. He looked at the files for every new arrival, and the key thing for him was whether or not that boy had family who were likely to visit him. He picked the most vulnerable of all the vulnerable boys in his care. Eight years later, in June 1977, Kevin Young, a former inmate at Medamsley, walked into a police station on the day that he left the institution to complain about the abuse he had suffered. Kevin was to be 18 the next day. He says, I explained to the officer that I'd just been released from Medamsley where I'd been subjected to a number of assaults by one of the officers, Neville Husband, and others I couldn't identify. I showed him the marks on my neck where I'd been ligatured the night before. I was told it was a criminal offence to make such allegations against a prison officer because I was on licence. They were basically threatening to take me back to Medamsley, so I scattered pretty quick. This statement made by Kevin Young was destroyed and no action was taken about his complaints. Durham police for a number of years denied that this had even happened and it's only relatively recently that they wrote to Kevin admitting they did in fact receive complaints from inmates at the institution especially in the 1970s and the 1980s. In 1985 There was an arrest of a member of staff at Medamsley, but it wasn't Husband. A storeman at Medamsley called Leslie Johnson was arrested for sexual abuse of a boy in his care, a boy named Mark Park. Mark told police that Husband had also sexually abused him, and Johnson told the police that Husband had, to quote, given him the boy. But no action was taken against Husband, and it was not long after this that he was transferred to Franklin Prison. Whether careless or forgetful, Husband did not clear his belongings from his personal locker and drawers, and when they were open, they contained a large amount of pornography and sex aids. In 1990, Husband left Franklin Prison and the prison service. On his departure, Husband was awarded the Imperial Service Medal for Serving with Diligence and Fidelity. After his prison career was over, Husband ran two local churches in the Gateshead area, which is local to Concert. There were allegations of children being abused at his churches, but nothing more was pursued by the parents of the boys and the girls involved. When he left, once more sex aids were in the drawers, and this time child pornography was on his computer. And the reason he left the church? is because he was arrested on suspicion of sexual abuse at Medhamsley. And his arrest was solely due to Kevin Young, the 17-year-old boy we just spoke about who complained about the abuse to the police the day after his release. Kevin Young's bravery is key to our story today, so let's find out a little more about his life and the actions leading up to husband's arrest. Talking to the Guardian newspaper in 2012, then aged 52, he told them how at just two years old he was taken into care following sexual abuse and was abused again in care by those responsible for his welfare. But then, aged just 17, his brother gave him a watch which turned out to be stolen and then he was sentenced to three months in Medamsley Detention Centre. What I'm about to say is harrowing beyond belief, so be prepared or maybe forward-wine for a few minutes. On the first morning at the institution, he was picked out of the breakfast line by husband and the nightmare began. I quote Kevin now. I was raped repeatedly, tied up and ligatured around the neck. It was the worst of the worst. Husband later took him to the storeroom where he locked the door and filled the keyhole with tissues. I was told by husband that he could easily be found hanged at Medansly and that that year six boys had already hanged themselves. Husband was so sure of himself that he was able to take me out of the prison against my will and to his private house just outside the prison gates. In his house I was blindfolded, ligatured and made to lie on the stairs. Then three or four other men raped me as well. I could see them from the bottom of the blindfold. A rope was put around my neck and turned until I passed out. Husband was expert at it. He was a big, stocky, powerful man. After not being believed after his release, Kevin tried his best to get on with his life and all was going well as he was running a successful business with his girlfriend. But then years later, a chance encounter changed everything. He literally bumped into husband again in York, when husband was now a churchman, and all the old feelings came flooding back. Kevin had a breakdown, he developed an expensive cocaine habit, he was drinking way too much and he lost his girlfriend, his house and everything he owned. He was at rock bottom when two years later, the police tracked him down to where he was living in a pokey bedsit and asked him to give evidence about the abuse he'd suffered at another home he'd been at before Medamsley where he'd also suffered abuse. When he talked to police, he told them the full horror of Medamsley, and one chief inspector told him, we've been after husband for years. What happened next is beyond traumatic, but Kevin was taken to a house where he was showing old film footage on a projector. Kevin describes what happened next. The film showed a young boy about 16 to 17 with a rubber thing across his head being choked. And they asked me, who do you think this is? And I said, I don't need to tell you who I think it is, it was me. So I had to sit down and watch 40 minutes of me being. He's made many films of his victims. Kevin's bravery in being willing to give evidence against husband led to his arrest and eventually being charged and convicted in 2003 of sexually abusing five male inmates between 1974 and 1984. The married United Reformed Church minister strenuously denied molesting the teenage boys when he was in charge of the detention centre kitchens. By now, husband was 65 and he showed no trace of emotion as the jury returned its verdicts at the end of a two-week trial. Jurors were told how husband used fear and intimidation with his vulnerable victims from unstable backgrounds. The judge said to him, Their fear of you caused them to submit to your unwelcome attentions and was, in my judgement, a gross breach of trust. You and others like you helped cause their damaged personalities. Until now, they never thought that anyone would believe them. In 2005, husband's sentence was increased to 10 years when more than 70 people came forward to talk about the abuse they'd suffered. He served just over half of this and he died a year after being released. Another victim who came forward was a man called Steve Hall. His starting life was horrendous, having been in 15 homes by the time he was 12, and he was abused in many of those homes. Just before Christmas 1979, he was arrested as a passenger in a stolen car when he was given a three-month sentence at Medamsley. In week one, he was tapped on the shoulder by a husband who told him, you are working for me, and the abuse began. Hall spoke of one occasion when he was about to be raped by husband, but this was delayed when one of his friends, Martin Woznidge, arrived at Medamsley. Wasnidge mocked Hall about the activities with husband, but then the two didn't speak until husband's trial in 2003. But ahead of the trial, Hall told police that he believed that Woznidge was another victim of abuse. He'd seen husband groping him. But Woznage, who was in prison himself at this time, denied it. Tragically, during Husband's trial, Martin Woznage hanged himself in prison. Steve Hall, naturally but incorrectly of course, felt terrible guilt about this and he suspected that his friend just couldn't face it become knowing in his jail that he was another victim of Husband. When Husband was awaiting trial, the convicted Storman Johnson, remember, from 1985, produced a statement saying the following. After a while, Neville and I became good friends. We had a mutual interest in religion. We joined the Freemasons and we got on pretty well together. We sometimes went out with our wives to social functions. At one stage, I think Neville suggested he'd a lad working in the kitchen who he thought would be suitable to assist me in the stores. I developed a sexual relationship with him. As a result of this, I was convicted at court of indecent assault and I subsequently left the prison service. Later in the statement, Johnson confirmed that husband had also assaulted the boy. The boy, Mark Park, is now serving life in prison himself for rape. We can only speculate about how his time at this institution has ruined his life and also others. Other former colleagues of husband's were questioned including James Miller-Reed, who was the governor at Medamsley between 1976 and 1978. He was alleged to have, at best, covered up allegations of abuse to protect husband and others. At worst, he was accused of playing a major role in the abuse. When you think about it, there were only 12 prison officers at the institution, plus one warden, so it's hard to believe that he didn't know exactly what was going on. One ex-prison officer who worked there, Alan Reed, told police in 2002 that the abuse was common knowledge. In September 2000, detectives arrived at Reed's house to question him about the abuse allegations at Medamsley. Reed asked if he could come to the police station a couple of days to give a statement, but he never arrived. His body was found in nearby woods, with the inquest recording an open verdict as the body was so badly decomposed. One psychologist, Ellie Godsey, said that these crimes are some of the worst sexual abuse she's ever come across. She said, This is one of the worst cases of sexual abuse I've come across in my 17 years working for the Home Office and working with some of the most prolific sex offenders and victims in the country. Sexual abuse on this scale could only happen in an institution, and husband was continually moved around from one young offender's institution to another allowing him to continue to sexually assault young boys wherever he went, with absolute and total impunity. Countless young people were dehumanised and degraded in a never-ending flow of young flesh to the torture chamber. Although it wasn't about the money, after Husband's conviction, Kevin Young and other survivors were once more let down by the government as they tried to obtain compensation for their suffering. The Home Office tried to throw the compensation claim out and their plea was that too much time had passed since the crimes occurred. This has worked well in the past as a defence for child abusers as the 1980 Limitation Act states that claims for compensation need to be lodged three years after the attacks took place. But Kevin's legal team argued there was provision for people to lodge claims three years after the date of knowledge. Abuse victims may not realise just how badly they've been harmed until years after the attacks took place. The judge at Leeds Crown Court rejected the Home Office's plea of limitation. But even so, the Home Office appealed against this ruling and tried to block Kevin Young's fight for justice. They spent well over 100000 trying to block the compensation. It's really hard to understand, isn't it? But fortunately, in the end the right thing happened and Kevin's legal team was successful in winning compensation for the victims. At the end of this fight, which went all the way to the House of Lords, Kevin's lawyers asked the Home Office if it intended to carry out a review or investigation of what had occurred at Medamsley. They were told there were no plans to do so. And get this, even more appallingly in 2010, Home Secretary Jack Straw. Replied to Stephen Byers, who was the local MP for one of the victims, who'd written to him asking for a public apology about what had happened. Straw replied, The terms of the agreement did not include an apology. The Guardian newspaper summed up the anger felt by this response, saying, That's right, Jack Straw, on behalf of the Labour government, said that victims, some of whom had been tied up and raped by an officer of the Crown, did not deserve an apology. And still it took more poking for the authorities to take real action in this case to ensure that justice is served. In this matter, it was the Guardian newspaper who ran a damning report into the case in 2012 and this finally caused the authorities, including Durham Police, to take action and they set up Operation Seabrook in August 2013. So Operation Seabrook launched by Durham Police to investigate the sexual and physical abuse by staff at Medamsley Detention Centre and there are three main aims. To ensure that support is provided for victims so they are in a better place after contacting police. To gain the fullest understanding of how Medhamsley operated during those horrible years. And to secure evidence so that potential offenders are brought to justice. If you don't know about the case, I think you're going to be quite shocked by this. By May 2017, 1,436 people had made complaints for abuse and the number continues to grow today. Operation Seabrook says that 32 files of surviving suspects have been sent to the Crown Prosecution Service and we will know later this year they'll be charged. We wait with bated breath for this to happen. Victims of Medemsley are of course frustrated by the time it's taking for these criminal charges and the fear is that many of the offenders, and also the victims, will be dead before justice can be served. But all we can do is wait. They've promised that there'll be news later on this year, so let's keep a close eye on what happens with Operation Seabrook. But what a terrible case we've listened to today. Those of you who read my blogs at UKTrueCrime.com will know my views on the appalling youth offender institutions in the UK, where we still keep on sending our children I keep hearing about reform, but nothing ever really seems to change. To me, there doesn't seem to be any urgency at all, so our most vulnerable children will continue to have their lives and prospects destroyed at the scandalous places of violence and despair. As for husband, and the other monsters who preyed on the boys in this case, well, it's just impossible to find the words to describe their actions. I know that husband has a child. I wonder how much this child, who I guess is in the 40s now, I wonder how much they know about their father. And as usual, it's the figures in authority helping to cover up the crimes and they're not acting properly in the aftermath. Blocking compensation, refusing to apologise. I mean, is it any wonder the public have lost faith in politicians? We look, we go back to, to Hillsborough, for example. You know, what an awful case these poor victims of Hillsborough just blocked, and it was just their fight and their, their passion to get justice for their loved ones that brought the people to, to account for what they'd done. And thankfully, now finally, there were charges. But so many years after the event. And Grenfell Tower just recently. How much faith have you got in the process there after the appalling way it's all been handled? Just when are we going to get transparency from the authorities? As for Medamsley Detention Centre, It was finally shut down in 1988, thank goodness, and is now a secure training centre. And the two victims we've looked at today. Kevin Young, he's broken his drink and drug addiction, which is great, but he lives in a shed in a friend's garden. He's understandably bitter about his treatment and what's happened to him, and how it could all have just been prevented if the authorities had only listened. Steve Hall, he's an alcoholic who, when not drinking... He stays in bed, shutting out the world with the curtains drawn. He said he feels like an empty and hollow man. For these two men, and all the other victims of Medamsley, the nightmare will never be over. The idea of Medamsley Detention Centre was to give inmates an experience they would never forget. On that, it's certainly delivered. Well, I hope you've enjoyed, if that's the right word, this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please come and talk about this case at our closed Facebook group. This isn't just to talk about the podcast, but all aspects of UK True Crime. Please also take a look at our Patreon site at patreon.com slash UK True For just £3 a month, you can access all four monthly bonus episodes and all the other inside information. And of course... Don't forget to order some awesome craft beer today at beer52.com. True crime. Cheers. Until we speak next week, cheerio. And remember, please don't be the sort of loser that one stars any podcast on iTunes. Surely life is too short. Stay classy.